Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast with Tracy Castles, PhD. I'm Tracy, and this week I had the joy of sitting down with Dr. Greer Kirschbaum, the world's first neuroscientist doula. We talk about all things pregnancy, parenting, and the brain. So if you're curious about what happens to your brain during pregnancy, how that primes you to be a certain parent, and then even how that parenting affects your child's neurological development, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, let me welcome you to Dr. Greer Kirschbaum on Parenting and the Brain. Hi, everyone. This is Tracy. Welcome back. And this week, I am talking to Greer Kirschenbaum, PhD. I am so excited to have her with me today. If you don't know Greer, let me tell you a little bit about her, and I can tell you it is highly impressive. So Greer is the first neuroscientist doula, which we will get into because that is really cool, and also the first neuroscientist infant sleep educator. She has her own company, Nurture Neuroscience, and her background is a bachelor in science in neuroscience from Dalhousie University, a PhD in neuroscience and medical science from the University of Toronto. She completed postdoctoral research fellowships and was an assistant professor at Columbia University. She is also a birth and postpartum doula trained by Bibo Mia, and she's been educated at New York University and Yale University in psychotherapy, infant parent psychotherapy, and infant mental health. Did I miss anything? I think that's all of it. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you know, for being here today to talk about the brain and the effects on our lifelong well-being, and especially as it pertains to parenting. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. I think when I started on this path, your website, Evolutionary Parenting, I was like, I'm not crazy, thank God. Um, it was a light in my career. Like it was just, you know, so important and it's so important for so many people. So, I mean, it's such a pleasure to speak with you always. Oh, thank you so much, my dear. It's so amazing to talk to you. I love these like-minded people coming from science into the realm of parenting because I think it's a voice that often gets lost. Um, not just because, there's misinterpretations of findings and everything, but academics tends to be pretty insular. And only recently are we seeing it really coming out into the public sphere. And yeah. I always think people need to hear from those that have done the research and everything themselves because they're more aware of the limitations of what we do know and Absolutely. all that jazz. So, yeah. As we get started, my first question for you really is let's start back, way back when. What brought you to neuroscience? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I feel like there's so many things that brought me into neuroscience. My my mom really sparked my interest in early life experience and neuroplasticity, um, mostly because she talked about me as a baby nonstop and that I couldn't be put down, cried all the time, slept for 20 minute chunks, um, you know, and, was, and and she was really responsive, right? And she really went against the grain at that at that time and co-slapped or bed shared with me, always responded to my cries, you know, was really, really there for me. Um, and then I did an international baccalaureate program for, for high school and we had to do an independent project. And that kind of came up. I was like, I want to know about that. Like, I want to know about, you know, babies like me and, and responsive care. Um, and I did a big project on it. So that was like my first kind of entryway in. Um, and, and then I think over time, once I got into science, so I, I kind of wanted to be an, a medical doctor. And so I, I was really lucky. I got into a neuroscience laboratory to, to study, you know, research and medicine. Um, I was actually a spinal cord injury lab. It was really interesting. Um, and and then I decided in university, I wanted to keep doing neuroscience because I was like, I want to, you know, keep learning about baby experience and neuroplasticity and, um, and, and the brain. It was like fascinating. I had an incredible mentor during that time and it was really, really drew me in. Um, and then I think in the end, I also had a lot of people in my life that, experienced low nurture and more difficult early life experiences and then really severe mental health challenges in adulthood and it's painful for them it's painful for people around them 
So kind of all of that together just kept me on that path um, in academia. It's interesting. I feel like you're now the poster child for all parents out there. When you have a baby that's wakeful and doesn't sleep and all of that, one of the common concerns I always hear is they're ruining their cognitive development. Like, yeah. oh my God, my baby's going to be ruined. I don't know what's going on. I think if I go back to the introduction I just gave, you're probably living proof that your cognitive development is a-okay <laughs> and that Sometimes babies do wake like that, and we don't need to necessarily worry about this long-term sequelae that leads to a child that can't find a job and these worst-case scenarios going through. So yeah. thank you for sharing that, because it is so important. And I know my mom also went against the grain with her responsiveness at the time, and it wasn't as extreme. Like, I didn't bed share anything. She didn't know about it, think it was yeah. safe. but her responsiveness was on point, but it was really hard at that time because there was no support yeah. for that kind of behavior in parents yeah, at that time. Absolutely. So, so we have you now at, you're at Columbia, you're an assistant professor. And what happened? You woke up one morning and was like, yeah, I want to become a doula. And yeah. a <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I mean, that's such a flip around from where yeah. you were. It really was. So, I mean, over the, you know, I was, most of my research was in how the emotional brain develops um, with the influence of genetics and experience together, because it's all part of the mix. Um, and over the 15 years or so, I was... I was in academia, there was so many articles coming out to make up this field of infant mental health that we have right now. All of the research coming out showing how um, experiences change the expression of our DNA through epigenetics came out. Um, all this maternal deprivation kind of work came out and showed how that impacted the developing brain. And I really was just inspired to have people outside of academia know it. Like every paper started, oh, obviously we know that infancy in the first three years of life are critical to lifelong physical health and mental health. I was like, nobody knows that at all. Um, I had friends who were having babies. They were telling me about sleep training and the spoiling stuff and needing to put a baby down. And I wanted parents to know that their choices were sculpting their, their baby's brains. Um, like how you said, right? Like, I think people know those early years are important, but they don't know how or why. Um, and I just saw so much uninformed parenting happening. And I know that everyone wants to do their best if they have the information. So um, I wanted parents to have informed choice. That was really, really important. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind of felt like there was so much information backed up in academia. None of it was getting out in a, in a clear way. There's a few books out there, but like they're not bestsellers, um, unfortunately. Um, and so I wanted to really communicate it. So I was like Googling. I, was, I found this cor the course at Yale that I took. I took the course at NYU, like during my postdoc, trying to bridge the gaps that I had between sort of understanding people's experience, you know, with babies and all that, all that kind of stuff. I learned about doulas. I had no idea what they were. And so I did doula training as well, um, thinking I was just going to be more information gathering. But I really loved it. And I continued to, to practice it. Um, for many years. And then I was like really overwhelmed by the prevalence of sleep training culture and everyone asking me about sleep. So I, you know, went back and did tons of research on that as well and started to work with sleep um, in a really, you know, gentle way. Um, yeah, that was, that was how it went. I think the other reason was I felt like the point of wanting to do research was in the beginning, I was like, I'm going to create, I'm going to like discover this like miracle drug target that is going to like help chronic stress, depression and anxiety. It's there, like we can find it. And then also over those many years, it's like, no, the brain is, an, is, is, you know, circuitry and connections. And we know those, all those circuits and connections, a huge part are forming in infancy and early life. And then I was like, well, what's the point of doing research then? 
to just keep finding this answer over and over. It's like, let's bring it out. Like people need it. Um, yeah. It's awesome. It's, you know, your story reminds me much of my own was at the beginning of EP. It was, I read all this research. I knew all this. And then I'd see what was written up in the public sphere for parents and everything. And I just kept thinking, how did this get here? Because this does not match. And the first bit of time, I actually thought it was me. I'm going, have I lost my ability mm -hmm. to read the research? Like, what is going on? Why am I taking this so differently? And realize that, A, so many of the people writing it do not have the background in science to understand the nuance. Yeah. Sometimes even those that do, one of the things that really struck me was the lack of knowledge about statistics. Because I did a minor in psychometrics mm -hmm. during my PhD, which meant I had to take, you know, a slew of all courses to do with stats and everything. And I, I loved it. I actually almost switched over to stats wow. for my PhD because I was just like, I love this. Um, I didn't, though. That minor kind of quelled that, that urge to <laughs> stay even longer since I was already years into developmental. Um, mm -hmm. But this is where I think there's this important point that needs to come out is so many people think you can read an abstract of an article which gets shared around and understand what's at yeah. play. Yeah. And it's not as simple. And we do need people that like you, and I hope myself, I, I'm doing it well, can share this information in ways that really breaks down the knowledge that people need to have to make an informed decision as it goes. Absolutely. It's really unfortunate. Like I always say too, like the public has paid for this research. Like it's billions of dollars of our tax, our taxes fund this research. We deserve to know what it means. And it's also like pretty much written in a different language, right? Like you, I wish everyone could read these studies and, and take, you know, important points from them, but it's pretty much you need to learn a new language to read them, right? It's also, I think, some fault has to lay at the feet of the universities because there is almost no, from everything I've seen in, in academic life, there is almost no acknowledgement of the power of community outreach. Yeah. So when you do have researchers that want to do it, they have to do it on their own time, on their own dime. Mm -hmm. There is very little ways in which universities support that. It's all about getting things published, in journals that don't have public access mm -hmm. and then not really sharing those findings or maybe the university sends a brief snippet out to something like Science Daily or other sources that try to amalgamate this. But researchers aren't often given the opportunity to talk about what they're yeah. finding, what the nuances are and how people should be interpreting their research because most researchers are quite nuanced in their understanding Absolutely. of this. So. Yeah. Well, let's dive into this brain issue because there is so much to talk about on this and I'm fascinated to hear. So can we start with pregnancy and the yeah. brain? Because I think that's a huge one. So if we think about the maternal brain, because there's both the maternal brain and the infant brain that we have mm -hmm. to consider here. Yeah. What is happening to the maternal brain in pregnancy that sets the stage for this early caregiving environment that she'll provide? Yeah, I... I love the new term. Well, I don't know how it's not a new term, but it's starting to be talked about more. The term matrescence um, for for the process of going from an adult brain to a mother a mother brain, and patrescence, which is the process from going from a father from a male or whatever a adult to a father, um, and it's nearly as massive and transformative as adolescence. And we all understand that, right? Like we all get it. Like a child and an adolescent, very different. Brain, very different behavior, thinking, motivations, everything's different. Um, and it's that massive when we become parents as well. Yeah, it's huge. So when we become, when someone's pregnant, those brain changes start to happen throughout pregnancy. Um, and I mean, like, just like pretty much everything when, you know, huge changes happen, it's like so many systems in the brain are affected, right? Like we're like, oh, this massive change is happening. Pick a target area. It's probably changing. Right. Um, and, and the point is this brain architecture changes so that we be actually become responsive parents. Um, they're largely up in social cognition, emotional 
recognition, um, things like that. So our emotional areas like our hypothalamus changes, amygdala, our dopamine and reward systems change, hippocampus changes, um, our fusiform gyrus, so our, you know, part of our brain that recognizes faces, our auditory processing changes so that you can hear cries better or, you know, more profoundly. Um, and then social cognition, that's the huge one, right? So the same areas that um, are part of theory of mind. So when we think about another person, if you do an MRI, like an fMRI, so a functional imaging of a of someone thinking of another person, and then of the brain areas that change when you become a parent, they completely overlap. So you're, yeah, it's a cool, it was a really cool study. I can send you on that. Um, and that's really new. I think that's like only a few years old, that study. So, so we're really learning a lot more now. Um, I think the term matrescence has been around for a while, but the neuroscience of it is really blossoming. Um, so yeah, it makes us a more able to read our baby's cues, read emotions, read baby communication, be responsive to the babies, um, and attuned to be rewarded by those interactions, right? So our oxytocin and our dopamine systems benefit um, by being close to our babies and responding to our babies. Um, so it's, yeah, it's pretty massive. And I think most parents feel it. And like, I've had that conversation with people before where I'm like, yeah, the brain changes so much. And they're like, call their partner over and they're like, come here, come here, listen to what they're, she's saying. Um, it's huge. And one of my other clients, my her favorite things was she was like, to her partner, she's like, see, I'm not going crazy. My brain is under construction. <laughs> um, I love that. What a great term. My brain is under construction. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I love that too. I'll never forget it. Um, and like, there's a funny part to it because it's, you know, we do change a lot, but it's also not funny because we do undergo these changes to be very attuned and responsive to our babies. And then we come up against all this pressure not to be, and we're not believed, right? It's like, you're worrying too much. You're, you care too much. You, you know, you're this like crazy hysterical woman who's like worried about all this stuff. Right. And it's, um, not funny, right? Like that, that's, that stuff's unacceptable. Um, so I think it, by understanding this information, it also helps people take charge of the situation and say like, no, I'm doing great. I know exactly what my baby needs and, and I'm going to do that and you can do whatever you want. That's awesome. I want to backtrack one. I need to fix something I said first. And oh, I yeah. apologize. Is that I went in saying mother and she, and I want to be very clear that it can be both. And I'm very oh, yeah. sorry for that little slip there. So that was my little, we use maternal still regardless, because I think that's more of a scientific term. I, and yeah. in, it's all in the studies. It's always maternal because it's the easiest thing to study, right? Studies yeah. are hard. And that so, but I want to be clear that that change will happen whether you are gendered male, gendered female, or something else in between. It doesn't matter. It's still there. And I apologize for using she instead of using they. So that's oh, just yeah. my clarification oh. there. Um, it's amazing to me because what you're telling me is still newish information for me. And I've heard some of this, but I really didn't realize how profound the change was because yeah. I've always focused on you know, the younger years where we see these two big areas of plasticity in infancy, those first three years, and then again in adolescence, where we see another reemergence. And yet it makes sense because I know the theoretical underpinnings of those areas of plasticity stem from, okay, the infant brain is developing what it's going to be like to be a child throughout. Mm -hmm. What kind of world am I going to grow up in? Mm -hmm. And then you hit adolescence and it's, okay, what kind of world am I going to be an adult in? to try and survive? What skills am I going to need? What do I need to be aware of? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, of course it shifts. I mean, just from a logical perspective, why it took so long to get here, because yeah. of course it has to shift if you're hitting the stage of now I'm becoming a parent and what does my brain need to have going on mm -hmm. for that? Exactly. So, well, the brain is changing for parents in this period, 
what's happening to baby's brain during pregnancy? I mean, outside of obviously just developing, but (laughs) more specifically, you know, what does our baby come out hardwired for from a neurological perspective? Yeah, that's a great point. So the one, one more thing I wanted to add that also supports nurturing and responsive care is there's ways to make the parent brain change more. Really? Yes. And that is to be close to your baby, lots of skin to skin, smelling your baby, smelling your baby's head. um, And that's in the NICU too. And that's important because that's something that hasn't gotten into hospitals yet in all hospitals. Um, It's important. Um, I feel like you and I could have a whole other conversation on the neurology and neuroscience of the NICU experience itself, because it feels like that's just, yes, saving lives, but there's so much that needs to be done there, too, as an aside. Yeah. We'll just have you back. That's what we'll talk about next time. Okay. Um, But yeah, in in pregnancy, the baby brains are also taking in a lot of information. So yes, they're, you know, developing all of their, all of the systems are developing in pregnancy. but the ways that their brains are sort of getting ready to have relationships um, are also pretty profound. So babies can hear voices starting pretty early on. I think I'm going to say 16 weeks, but it's like 16 to 20 weeks or so. Babies start to hear tones and 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 drumming and things like that. Um, but around 20 weeks, they'll start to hear voices and then they'll be attuned to those voices later on when they're born. So talk to your baby, read to your baby. I had my partner read to our baby every night during pregnancy, um, which actually ended up being really important because I I had a surgical birth. I was separated from my baby. So my partner was my baby's like anchor, you know, for those first few hours. Um, Singing to babies is amazing. Um, Babies will actually recognize a book or a song that they've heard in the womb, they'll recognize it postpartum and like it's calming and relaxing. It's amazing. It's amazing. They're so smart. Um, they can feel touch. So there's there's been some really cool studies where if you when you touch your belly and, and touch the baby inside, the baby will touch back. And and uh, so so that's a really nurturing thing to do as well. It's really cute to see. I feel like every parent's had that experience where you don't know that they're really doing it. You almost think it's a reflex, but you want to believe. So it's actually nice to know that you're actually doing that. It's not my imagination. (laughs) They're really responding back, not just reflexively kicking back or something. Yeah, that's really cute. I I can post that as well. I love that that I haven't seen it in a while. Um, A big one. And, you know, we talk, I focus a lot about experiences with stress and relaxation, um, that babies can experience stress. So if a parent's stressed, baby's stressed too. Um, and pregnancy is stressful. So everyone will be stressed and their pregnancy is not about avoiding stress. It's part of life. Um, but the other thing is that babies can also sense relaxation and stress management and stress relief. Um, so, so employing tools to relax during pregnancy, there's a huge range, whether that's like mindfulness, meditation, walking, you know, yoga, there's, all, there's so many different ways to to relax, taking a bath, you know, whatever it is. Um, doing that regularly is really important for the infant brain too. So that's already starting to influence their, their emotional brain. Um, and taste, they can also taste. So foods in pregnancy end up being recognized later on. Um, as well. So yeah, so the baby's brain, you know, experiences all these things, and is born pretty much just ready to be in a relationship, like baby comes out, wants to look um, at at the caregivers, you know, really wants to taste and smell, um, you know, um, the mother mostly, like if someone's lactating, the, the baby's like, will breast crawl up themselves. This was like actually one of my favorite things is that birth can happen completely on its own as far as the baby can be, if a a birthing person is is unconscious for whatever reason, the baby can can birth and then can crawl up 
because a lot of people will have a darker line on their belly, will crawl up that line, follow that line to a nipple and latch on um, all by themselves. And we don't really do that, but um, that's incredible to me, right? Did you do that? I did it. I did. It was awesome because I'd read about it when I was pregnant with my daughter. And so we just laid back and let her kind of root her way. She didn't make it all the way. She was placed, you know, partially on my chest. But in terms of getting up, we allowed her to go up. And same with my son, too, at that point, just allowed him to go up and find his way. It's have an instinct for that, which is incredible. Exactly. Like they're built in to do it all. So that's it. They're ready to like connect physically and emotionally. They want to look at faces. They want to hear the the voices that they've heard. So all of these things are calming and relaxing and feel safe um, for a baby. Their brain is, um, you know, we talk about their brain kind of has like a, a very diffuse kind of amount of attention. So they kind of like vaguely pay attention to a lot of things, but the parent's face, voice, um, all the things that they're used to from pregnancy they'll be attracted to um, when they're little. And then over time, all that kind of stuff develops. It's like you've just described the things we try to learn about partners when we're in a new relationship. Like you want to know what, not necessarily what they taste like in that sense, but like what taste they like, what they Uh smell like, all those things feel like that bonding that you have Mm -hmm. as you enter any relationship with someone that you have a very strong connection with. So I'm thinking predominantly romantic relationships, but even very strong friendships, you learn these things about them, their voice becomes calming, all these things happen over time, which is why we can turn to these people. So it kind of makes sense when you think about being born into that environment whereby that is something that is naturally attracting your senses and your attention. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, using that example is really smart as well, because I think a lot of family, a lot of parents aren't prepared for how intimate the relationship is right? Like it's, it's not, it's a, an intensely intimate relationship that I don't, I I wasn't prepared for that personally. Like I knew, you know, I would be close to my baby, but I did not realize the extent. It, the theory does not, yeah, it doesn't match the practice of Mm -hmm. the intensity of feelings and everything that go along with it. It's true. So, if we take all this, we now have babies born, mom's brain is prepared to respond. Um, the maternal and the paternal brain are so whatever, however that looks, it's ready to respond. Yeah. Um, and this goes to I also want to just just briefly address that, of course, there are going to be people who have surrogates, etc. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's still, you know, you can take a lot of this information to build up that that primacy for baby to want to be attached in terms of that playing voices, everything. So when we talk about this research, there's never a point in shaming or saying, oh, you're not going to have as good a relationship. None of that bears true. It's taking that information and being able to use it to our advantage, given our situations, just like stress. We know there's stress and there's events outside people's control. You think about the last year of pregnancy, people during COVID. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is going to be a large experiment as to how does the stress of what's happened here affect outcomes later on and you don't have a control over it. So you only have control, like you said, over how you respond to stress and what you're capable of doing for it. So I want people to remember there's no, no shame here. And I think what we'll probably get to here is that after that birth, there's still a whole lot changing and a whole lot to do to boost mental health. So One of the things you say, and I'm quoting you here on your site, is nurturing early caregiving boosts lifelong mental health. So this is what so many people are concerned about. We want our babies to be healthy. We want um, we want to see good outcomes. So let's start with what are these kind of effects that you're talking about in terms yeah. of mental health? What are the risks or rewards that will come with this type of parenting? For sure. Um, I think... Um, I just want to comment on what you what you said as well. The the partner's brain actually starts to change within the three or four months postpartum. And they can use the same the same sort of practices to make their brain changes to a larger extent, right? Like 
the skin to skin, holding, smelling, all that kind of stuff. Um, same for, you know, adoption, surrogacy, all of that kind of things. The thing that's really important to know about the brain is like, yes, we, we I talk about all the time. These early years are really important, but the brain is really smart. <laughs> it's not going to take necess you know, a bit of that time, you know, a bit of that time and like make that the hard wiring, right? It's sampling experience over repeated, you know, experiences over and over. Um, so yeah, exactly. It. I think some people have challenges in pregnancy, some in birth, some in early postpartum, some during toddlerhood, you know, we're all going to have challenges at one or many other points, we're all going to be stressed. Um, and that's okay. Like that's like, there's no, there's nothing to be scared of. Right. It's, that's, that's part of our, our experience. Um, but when we do give an overall nurturing, um, approach, we are really boosting lifelong mental health, um, for, 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 for life and our babies. And so, the major systems that we know get built um, throughout pregnancy and at least the first three years of life, the big one is the stress system. So nurture will increase the number of stress receptors um, in parts of the brain, like the hippocampus. Um, and this was like revolutionary work. Like this was just like blew everybody's mind, like, like lots of, of touch and response, responsive care in early life changes the expression of genes in many parts of our brain that can later on affect our stress system. So when we have lots of stress receptors, that means we have a lot of control to shut off stress. So we have shorter stress responses. We don't have, you know, huge stress responses. Um, and we have appropriate stress responses to appropriate stressors. Um, same in our amygdala is another part of our stress system that's affected by early caregiving and our hypothalamus is affected by early caregiving. Um, our connections between our sort of our emotional brain, our amygdala and our prefrontal cortex, that is influenced as well. As well. And all to put all together, our stress system becomes more efficient at regulating stress in adulthood. And when in adulthood, if we can regulate stress really well, that is the key to lifelong health, both mental health and physical health. I think you remind me of um, the orchid concept child here, where I think this is almost like an exaggeration of what you're describing, where the boosting of support and care is buffering that higher stress that they experience throughout, especially those first three years. I don't know, you know, if you've read it, but I was reading uh, Megan Gunner's career perspective article. And she talked about how, you know, there is this group of kids who seem to be orchids, who contrary to what happens with all sorts of other children, who have this period of hyporesponsivity in the first mm -hmm. after about three months to three years. So their cortisol, what that means is their cortisol response doesn't escalate too highly in response to various stressors. And it happens naturally. This mm -hmm. isn't after initial caregiving that's good in the first few months. Orchids don't seem to have that. They continue to go way high with their stress very quickly. And it's our responsiveness, that buffering that allows that experience to be safe and yeah. to help them build the skills that they will need in the long term for that. So it's almost, you know, if you are the parent of an orchid, you know how important that responsiveness is to regulating stress in the moment and for the long term. And this is kind of this on a level for everyone, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, first of all, it's regardless of, of your genetics, it's important because that plasticity is there anyway. Then if you're an orchid, it's even more important. And there's also a huge range of susceptibility genes that are also incredibly sensitive to early caregiving. And we're not genotyping kids. We probably all have them. And just like, let's just assume that all kids need this, right? Exactly. Yes. I didn't want to ever suggest that it was just for one group. It's just, I feel like oh, they're yeah. the exaggerated response to highlight 
how important it is for everyone to exactly. have that. So can you talk a bit about susceptibility genes for a minute there? What are you referring to for people so that they understand what this actually refers yeah. to? So there's a couple, I mean, I, I believe there's about six. Um, one, the most well-known one is the serotonin gene, the long form and short form serotonin gene. So if you have different you know, combinations of this gene, it, you'll become more and more, um, sorry, sort of the early caregiving environment can buffer your chances of, of, of having depress depression later on. So with high caregiving, nurturing, responsive caregiving, if you have the susceptible combination of this gene with nurturing, your increased risk of depression doesn't change. It's sort of typical, like, like in the typical population. But if you don't have, if you have low nurture, if you don't have that responsivity in early life, I believe the risk of depression goes up at, at least doubles, if not goes up um, more. Yeah. Um, which is really important. Um, so yeah, I was going to say something else about orchid. Oh yeah. The other thing that's really important, um, a really interesting thing to say about the orchid, uh, our orchid children um, and every other type of children is the sort of way that I like to talk about it with parents is that babies are born without any ability to regulate themselves. Like they just don't have those brain parts. It's all in higher level brain areas, prefrontal cortex. They're actually physical inhibitory GABAergic cells that we can look at, map, measure. Babies just don't have them. Okay. So the parent's job in these early years is to be an ex sort of like an external brain to the baby, like to lend, we need to lend babies our functioning prefrontal cortex, our functioning inhibitory self-regulation skills. We have to be present for them in order for them to grow those parts efficiently as well. Like that's the other part that's on top of the emotional system. And that's so important because I, you know, that's why I specified that it's kind of after that first three months or so that they develop that bit of hyporesponsivity because, you know, for all babies, those first three months are met with constant stressors. Everything sends them way up. It's just that if they have that responsive caregiving, we're buffering that. We're acting mm -hmm. as the social buffer to help them learn how to bring their stress back down, yeah. how to mitigate the size of that effect if they happen to be in touch with us at the moment of the stressor. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it happens during, sometimes right after we serve as that social buffer, but that is our job. We are co-regulating them. Mm -hmm. And that co-regulation doesn't end at three months. It doesn't yeah. end you know, at three years. No. <laughs> it's something that you know, we need many times, even us adults throughout our life. And I've talked about it before. And I'll say it again here. You know, I remember, I always think about children's response in general, but also especially orchids as they get older too. When my mom died, it was very sudden. And I was floored at figuring mm -hmm. it out. And I could not co-regulate to save my life. I mean, regulate to save my life. Sure. I was a mess. My husband, I had to call him on the phone and as he tells me after, I didn't realize, I thought I was being very clear in what I was saying to him about what had happened. And he was like, I don't, I had no idea what you were saying. Yeah. It, it wasn't until someone else got on the phone that he finally understood what had happened. Yeah. And it's, I feel like we forget that for kids, they hit that level of inability to cope far faster. And we need to be there. Although these events, I think sometimes it gets hard for parents, especially as you hit toddlerhood and stuff, you see things that seem big yeah. and we kind of dismiss them, but they are huge to them. They mm -hmm. are big. And this kind of leads to what I want to ask is, you know, we've talked about the effects here, but what does nurturing early caregiving look like when we talk about, I think there's a lot that we've hinted at in terms yeah. of this touch everything, yeah. but really from your perspective and your work, what are the key features that we're looking at here? Yeah, for sure. So starting from birth, um, minimal to no separation beginning at birth um, for parent, for both the parents brain health and the baby's brain health, there's really massive changes there. And again, this is not, pressure. I mean, there's medical reasons why they have to, you know, birthing people and babies need to be separate, but baby can always go to a partner, to a family member, to someone. There's a lot of pressure in the hospital to be like, oh, let's take, we'll take the baby. We'll, you know, we'll, you know, we'll swaddle them. And, you know, you, 
it's, you know, you can be a mom tomorrow. You can be a dad tomorrow. Like we'll do, you're missing out on like really, really important um, brain changes there. Right. Um, and that's okay. Like even some people are separated for 24 hours or more also because of medical reasons, whenever it's medically possible, that's when you, that's when it can start like no pressure. Um, no need to panic. Um, like again, I said, the brain has, you know, thinks in weeks, not, you know, weeks and months, not like days. Um, so that's really important. And then we really want um, baby to be really close physically, like skin to skin, being held um, for at least the first six weeks of life. Um, there's really important brain circuits that are developing during that time. Um, so baby wearing is a really great thing to do. Um, also in the, you know, if it's possible with work, like, taking care of the baby is your thing, is the thing, right? It's like, don't plan, like people can come to you, they can, you know, visit you, they can help you, they can bring you food, they can help you, you know, have time to shower, you know, do all those things. But um, you need to be the one who's being cared for you and the baby during that time. Um, so that you can support that for the baby, right? Like we don't need to be distracted and go running around and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that's really important. Um, and that's a, a, that's a, a time where people are like, well, my baby can't be put down. Oh, they can't sleep if they're not on me. There's something wrong. Um, which, you know, I don't, I also don't know where that came from because every single baby does it. And like, that's normal. Um, I, I it's crazy that it's one of the widest held myths is that somehow babies should just be happy being apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's wild. And like, when you look at the physiology, it's very profound. Like when a baby does get separated, their heart rate drops because they're stressed. Um, and all of their, all of their physiology, um, isn't operating at an efficient rate, right? Like glucose, oxygen, temperature, all of it gets dysregulated, heart rate, um, sleep, babies don't have normal sleep cycles. Um, if they're not touching somebody in those early weeks. So set up, set up your world, set up your supports so that your only thing is really holding your baby, feeding your baby, eating, drinking, and like watching Netflix or something. <laughs> you like it's funny you mentioned that separation because one of the things that I always remember getting so confused by when I'd read this is in psych research, when you're looking to stress a child out for, you know, if you need to get cortisol levels up to assess mm -hmm. what they are, you separate them mm -hmm. from their caregiver. And that is the, and we do it with primates as well. When you look at primate research, that is how you elicit stress. Mm -hmm. So I keep thinking we've known this for psychological studies for ages, that yeah. this is what we do to elicit stress, to intentionally elicit stress. And usually smaller amounts, we're not aiming to cause a massive, really can't ethically do that. Um, mm -hmm. But that is what we do. So, and yet we turn around and then tell parents that's what they should be doing. It's nuts. I mean, and that's all the same with the neuroscience research. So the what's called maternal deprivation studies are removing a pup from their mother um, every day for for a few hours. I think it's about three hours a day for about ten days postpartum. Um, and that's not the and that that's like equivalent to like three months, you know, to twelve months and months plus. Like that's the time when people are trying to separate from their babies for 12 hours a day. Way too long. It's right? just not, not, we are mammals at the end of the day. Yeah. And there are certain mammalian instincts that I think people need to be aware of as we go. So, I mean, we know this, can you, what does the later caregiving look like a bit? Because right. we talked, it's, you know, you mentioned earlier that the brain is really developing for those first three years in a way for the first batch of our massive plasticity. Yeah. So how does that shift as we have children that get older? I mean, we know yeah. what it looks like in the early weeks and months, but they change and we have to kind of change with them and yet maintain this nurturing mm -hmm. responsive relationship. So what Absolutely. does that look like from a neurological? So one, way, one thing that we already talked about was responding to distress. Right. And so I like to encourage parents just 
unconditionally respond to distress. You know, I think as adults, we need to learn this too. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. When your child tells you, <laughs> I'm, I'm uncomfortable, I'm stressed out right now, we believe them. Like, it doesn't matter if it's because they want some kind of stuffed animal in the car or like whatever, you know, um, we have to respond positively um, to that distress and understand our role as a regulator. And crucially, I just want to add in here that responding positively does not mean giving them whatever they want at a given time. Mm -hmm. It means how we respond emotionally to them in being empathetic towards them, in being supportive of these emotions, in Mm -hmm. allowing them to have them and not dismissing them. Exactly. I think that's a huge um, myth, right? It's like, oh, you're responsive and nurturing. That means that your kid's in charge, right? Like, we're allowed to say, like, we have boundaries. We're allowed to say no. We're allowed, our kids are allowed to be upset. They just need the freedom to express their emotions. Um, it helps for us to be emotional coaches during those times too, right? That's a learning moment as well. Naming emotions, sort of teaching them, oh, I'm wondering if you're really angry right now because you wanted this toy in the car and I left it at home right? Like this, I can see this is really hard for you. You really wish it was here. Um, You're probably frustrated. You might be angry. You might be, you know, a number of different things, right? And especially with anger, linking it to, I know it feels angry, but I bet you're probably really sad. And that's making you feel angry is what's happening underneath because they are very unitary in their experience of emotion. One takes over at a time, this idea of holding two emotions comes on later in line in our I development. But yet, if they can learn, you know, that underneath one emotion, they can experience that one, but underneath after is something else. It validates those emotions. And I find too, helpful. I don't know if you found this, but when I remind parents of that little fact that tantrums, everything underneath is often fear or sadness, mm-hmm. it really helps build their empathy for yeah. the child's plight. Because then we look at our kids and we don't feel like, oh, they're just angry and upset and we get this immediate defensiveness response to something. We can look at them and see a child who's hurting or scared. And our response to that, even if the way they're expressing it is different or inappropriate, even I hate that term because when you're young, there is no real inappropriate, but it's from an adult standard, it's inappropriate, but not for a child standard. But that is it's so important for our ability to remain calm in those moments too. I like that. I I mean, that's so necessary for toddlers. And I also really like it for infants, right? Because infants can cry so much instead of being like, Oh, you're so annoying. It's like, I like, I like parents to say it out loud. Like you're hungry. Like you need me. You are so sad. Right. And that really helps change the mindset of parents. And speaking it out loud, that is so essential. I can't tell you how many times I talk to families about that too, because we can think so much. And oftentimes we have thoughts that we don't ever want to say out loud because we don't want them to feel true. Weird, intrusive thoughts come in. Mm -hmm. It's saying something out loud that makes it real for us. And in ways that just thinking it doesn't, because we do have so many thoughts that come in and out. And we know that not everything that enters our brain is logical, is real, is what we want to act on or what we want to feel. But once we verbalize it, we're bringing it to the forefront. And when we bring it to the forefront, it becomes real for us in ways that just thinking about it can't. So when you have a kid and they're having a hard time, even if you don't know what it is, you might not know they're hungry, but saying, I know you're finding this hard and I love you and I'm here. Yeah. So important. So important. So I think it's like, I would group the, what nurturing responsive care is into both the physical and then emotional, right? The physical is lots of touch, lots of, you know, being there um, physically. And then also this sort of taking on this role of like an emotional teacher or emotional coach um, as well. I think that's kind of the best way to sum it up. I love it's true. It is. There's these two elements. And I think what sometimes people forget is as kids get older, that physical touch, coaching, etc, can start 
to go down a bit. They become more independent. They start to walk. They're exploring. They're they're separating physically from you. Yeah. Emotionally, that does not happen for years and years and years. And even, I mean, think about it. There was a reason I was so distressed at losing my mom because there was still an emotional Absolutely. connection and need and everything. And so we all have that going on forever. So we don't want to mistake physical independence with emotional independence. Yes. Um, and another big part is um, that that none of that changes when the sun goes down, um, which is another huge, huge myth. We need to parent at night and still be responsive at night as long as a child needs it. And this is an obsession um, with people. Um, and like you said, I almost feel crazy for telling people how long their kids are going to need them every single time. Like, it's like, I just want to convince people that their baby needs them longer than six months. Like I'm scared to say how many years their baby's actually going to need them. Right. It's like, it's almost like, let's, let's focus on the first three years and the next three years and the next three years. Um, it's a big, it's a big responsibility, right? It's a, it's, it's a lot. Um, I, often have to start my discussion of please don't shoot the messenger. I am yeah. not. <laughs> I'm not doing this to you. I'm just trying to share the reality of what we know. Exactly. Um, yeah. But this actually speaks to the and I know we're coming up on time here and I don't want to keep you beyond but I think it's really important to let's talk about the fact that we don't live in a culture that supports really much of this. Mm -hmm. And not only is it not supportive, it actively works to undermine yeah. these types of parenting practices for families. Yeah. And what, how can we fix this? Just go and solve the problem for all of us, please. It's it. Every time I get into this and like talk about it, write about it. I just, it's so hard to understand. It is such a major problem in our culture that just has to end. Like it's making parents unwell. Um, it's setting babies up to be unwell, you know, in adulthood and throughout their lives. Um, I think, you know, my approach is to try to uplift the positive effects, um, really celebrate like the huge impacts we can make with nurture and make that the focus instead of like, you know, if you do all these other things, these bad things will happen. I want to say like, you have this inside you every, you know, you know, some of us have it more than others, right? If we had nurtured caregiving ourselves, it's going to come more easily to, to us as parents. If we didn't have nurturing care when we were younger, it's going to take more work for sure. But we are wired, um, you know, to, to be connected and nurture our babies. It hurts parents, like, you know, to to ignore their babies or, you know, to do certain sleep training techniques. It's very, it's hurtful for everybody, Right. Um, so I really like to support people and just say like, how, what do you want to do? Right? Like, what do you want to do? Of course, I want to go to my baby when they're responding, but I'm scared that like, they're not going to be smart when they grow up and they'll need me forever. And you know, all these myths. Um, I like to, you know, say like, guess what? We know none of that's true anymore. And what you're doing is so good. Like I want people who parent this way to just feel really empowered and really, really excited about what they're doing. And when people criticize them, they can say like, I think I'm doing a really good job. And you can think whatever you want. It's, I love that because I do think the upliftment is absolutely necessary to help families feel confident in what they're doing and that they can do it. And also I, I, I would add to that, that sometimes I think it's good to remember that as natural as all of this is, as historically normative as it is, as normal as our babies are, mm -hmm. we are not doing this in a normal environment Yes, from an evolutionary perspective. And that lack of support does mean it's going to be harder. Yeah. And I think this is part of that dichotomy of particularly with medical professionals and whatnot who should know better than to advocate these things. But when you read the research, on sleep training. The largest kind of push here is that, well, it's hard for parents, so we need to do this. Yeah. Sleep waking is, is difficult. Mm -hmm. And because it's hard, we have to stop it. Right. And 
I don't want to be one to dismiss the effects on parents. I know how hard sleepless nights are. Mm -hmm. I know how hard sleepless years are. Mm -hmm. And again, please don't shoot the messenger, but it's true. Babies wake, toddlers wake. Mm -hmm. And when we look mm -hmm. at the data on this, it, it extends for years. Yeah. And that is normal infant, toddler, child sleep. So when we think particularly in terms of nighttime, tantrums are normal to extend. They don't end at two mm -hmm. and they don't come on because you're a bad parent. You know, they come on because you, their brains are overloaded with yeah. information and they can't process it all. But knowing how little support we have, I keep getting frustrated that there is very little shift in our world, or especially amongst medical professionals to say, okay, let's take a look at what, what we can do to make things a little bit better for you. Right. Where can we yeah. bring in support so that you can feel supported in doing what you need to do as a parent? 100%. And this goes, I mean, from a perspective of parents, from for health professionals listening, I really hope you can take this step towards advocating for supportive interventions. But for parents listening, you know, sometimes the biggest voice you have is in voting and policy mm -hmm. decisions. Because mm -hmm. if you live somewhere where you don't have paid leave, where you don't have mental health access for parents. And mm -hmm. I know, even in Canada here, I had to go to the postpartum uh, clinic with my daughter, I was just at high risk. And I was very lucky that my midwives put me on the list while I was pregnant, because I was such mm -hmm. a high risk for postpartum yeah. depression, that it still took two months post-birth for me to get in. Yeah. And I was very lucky that I didn't end up needing it. I went to a few sessions. We established I was fine. And I could open that spot up to someone else. Yeah. But if I had been, if my midwives had not been on it, I would have gone in, say, at birth. And then what? I'm waiting eight to 10 months to... That is not benefiting people's yeah. mental health here. Yeah. And in turn, we're not supportive of everyone. So it's, I, th I think there's, you know, policy decisions and who we vote for go a long way and forcing the discussion amongst people that are running in these positions to Absolutely. ask them, what are they going to do? What are the changes that we need here? And yeah. to ask for concrete examples. I think it, it's a, such a big issue for the feminist movement as well to be pushing this forward like we need it and, and you know it's for for all families like mothers and fathers all families need to be way more vocal about what we need that we need leave we need access to high quality child care we need high quality services um there's so many like perinatal services that people have to pay for out of pocket that are just unacceptable um that like exactly I've had that experience with so many clients who like get into a really good um postpartum mental health program and then it ends when their baby's like two and a half or like they get in when the baby's two and a half or something insane um and that's it we need flexible work you know we need so many things like I think about like advocating for for breastfeeding and chest feeding we have now we have lactation rooms in some workplaces like we need nap rooms we need flexible time that like parents who are supporting their baby sleep, they can sleep in sometimes um, and come to work late and work late, you know, figure that out. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge shift that needs to happen on so many levels. And I think you're right. I think we need to vote for it and we need to advocate for it really hard because there's millions of us who need this yeah. and we've never really tried. I don't know. Maybe we I think we're too tired to try. We're too yeah. run down and busy doing everything else to add this to the list of things to do yeah. as it goes. Yeah. And I laugh, but it's not funny. I mean, it's that no. ah, ha, ha, or laughing uncomfortably because it's it's kind of true. Yeah. Um, I'm going to keep you for a few more minutes because I have to address one more discussion because I know we've touched on it throughout this several times and we've said not to worry, but mm -hmm. I know there will be people listening who have experienced high stress or trauma yeah, or sure. something with their children that may be beyond their control or they've tried practices that didn't work like sleep training and they feel guilt about it. Yeah. What are the things that they can do to buffer the potential mm -hmm. 
effects even because we talk about potential because I don't know you know there's a lot of different things that they may be thinking of some will have effects some won't but what are the things that they themselves can have control over that helps them with it yeah I think if someone's been influenced to be unresponsive in any way it's just never too late to change you can always become responsive right you can no matter how old your child is you can sit them down and do some repair and say, listen, I was really doing my best. I thought this was the best approach to take. Um, I want you to know that I'm making a huge change. And when you're, you know, feeling big feelings that feel good and that feel don't feel good, I am here for you. I want you to talk to me about them. I want you to express them and sort of really bring that back and encourage it. Um, depending on like sleep training, like when it's done and that kind of thing. As soon as you start being responsive, children will start to signal again, um, which also shows how much they want um, those signals answered at night. Um, so it's all it's all it can always be changed and repaired. So one of the stories I like the best is I mean, and this includes like all the way up to adulthood, right? Like one of my somebody I worked with who I was explaining this all to, she said that her parents, so her grandparent near the end of their life provided repair for their parent and like in that exact same way like you know what I've never told you I love you I'm proud of you you know I've been hard and cold my whole life Um, I thought that that was the right way and I was wrong Um, and then that parent was healed by that experience and then that changed their relationship with my friend right so like grandparent to parent and then parent to another yeah so that's so beautiful that's yeah and it and the healing will take place in different places in the brain and like yes those early life experiences do you know potentially shape you know all all of our emotional systems but then we do have plasticity you know, that can go on and on and on. So a lot of different repair, you know, both in the brain and the mind can happen. That's amazing. And I think it's also important to remember for any family that does have to go through repair is we live in a culture that expects repair to be quick. And it's not. It's in that moment as an adult, you may be able to cognitively process all of it and they have a, a faster repair. But I bet you anything that change with their child still took time to practice because we're creatures of habit. We get into behaviors that are not optimal, but they're hard to change. And it doesn't mean we give up. And I see so many families when they're trying to make change, get frustrated with themselves for not being perfect. Mm-hmm. You won't be. The brain just like it builds off multiple experiences over and over and over again, not just these one-offs, we have to remember that change takes place over multiple experiences. And sometimes we're going to mess up. And, you know, if you wouldn't treat your child with the disrespect that you would treat yourself over that, then you really, you need to give yourself the same level of care and consideration that you would give your child trying to learn something new in a new way of behaving. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Greer, thank you so much. Before we go, can you tell people what it is you offer, where it is they find you? Because you have so much. It's not just the work with parents that you do. So I want to give you space to share because you run Bebo Mia now, their sleep program. Um, You just seem to have a slew of courses. So please tell us all about it and where people can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best way to find me is uh, on Instagram um, or on my email, and that's linked through Instagram, and that's Nurture Neuroscience Parenting. Um, and I am starting, I'm really excited, in about a month, I'm going to start a new class um, of infant sleep educator certification. So I'm working with Babel Mia to offer you know doulas, therapists, doctors, you're invited. <laughs> um, but we have, it's mostly in our class this year, our doulas and therapists um, of all different kinds, lactation consultants, anyone who works with babies who wants to know more about the facts of normal infant sleep, and then also how to support infant sleep um, in a way where we educate, you know, make comfortable environments for babies, and coach the parents um, and help the parents as they support baby sleep, right? So there's no sleep training at all. Um, that's that's sort of um, something I'm really excited about because we're starting to be able to bring 
this work to a lot of different communities around the world. Um, and there's a link to that on my Instagram page as well. Um, and then otherwise I am taking, I take sleep consulting, uh, clients on myself a couple a week and you can contact me on, on Instagram through that as well. And the rest of my time this year is focused on writing a book ah. that I have to, to buckle down and do. Ah, so exciting. Well, I can't wait for that. I will uh, hopefully be able to get that from you when you're done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll come back on and talk about that along with NICU babies and all the other things to do with the brain and everything. So yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and talking about this vastly important topic. So I hope everyone enjoyed this. It was amazing for me. And even I am learning more. And I try to keep up with this as much as I can. But clearly, there's so much more out there that yeah. I can be learning and everyone can. So thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge with us today. Thank you so much, Tracy. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Please join me next week as I sit down with Dr. Levita D'Souza, a clinical psychologist at Monash University who specializes in attachment theory, as we discuss why it seems the research does not support a link between sleep training and insecure attachment. It should be a good conversation, so I hope you'll join us. Until then, happy parenting.